And so we come to Good Friday. We've heard the remarkable prophetic poetry of Isaiah centuries before the events of this day. We heard the reading of the gospel of the one who liked to call himself the one whom Jesus loved. As I worked with these passages over the last number of weeks, I felt like there were dozens of sermons asking to be preached. I hardly knew which one to choose. Throughout today, I've been trying to think about what would have been happening on that Friday as I lived through this Friday. This morning, I thought about the moment when Jesus would have been with Pilate, the soldiers, the chief priests and officers. Later in the morning, I thought this is about when he would have been sent to be crucified. And through the day, I thought about him there on the cross, suffering. This evening, as my wife and I were out to dinner, began to think of Jesus, and I thought of Joseph of Arimathea, the secret disciple, going to ask permission from Pilate to take the body, care for it, prepare it for burial. You know, if I'd been one of those disciples on that Friday, I'm not sure I'd be calling it Good Friday. You know, it is good for us today from our vantage point after a resurrection and an ascension and a Pentecost. But if I'm one of those 11 disciples, I think for me it feels like a terrible Friday, a disappointing Friday, even a a horrific Friday. So as I read in the Gospel of John and in the prophet Isaiah, I was drawn to a few core passages that I I want to highlight. First, there's the scene with Jesus and Pilate and the soldiers and the priests. Second, there are the lines that speak of Jesus being crucified, and there I want to touch the Isaiah reading. And then there are three words that John decides to record in his Gospel that Jesus speaks from the cross. There's the moment when he looks at his mother and says, woman, behold your son, pointing to John. Then he looks at John and says, behold your mother. The second thing we hear John tell in his story is that Jesus says, I thirst. And then finally, at least in the Gospel of John, the last thing Jesus says is, it is finished. And so the first scene, as the gospel reading begins, there is Jesus being flogged at Pilate's direction. You know, when I was a young Christian, there were those in our tradition who would take a line like that. Jesus took, or Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And and then they would paint a picture of this flogging that should have been rated R for violence. And it was just an absolutely gory story, the way it would be told. I, I would feel nauseous. But in an odd way, as I think back, I'm not sure that story, the way that story was told, was focused on Jesus. I'm not sure that it was a story of measureless love or of the profound authority of Jesus in that moment, enduring that suffering. So as the gospel reading continues, 
Pilate indeed commands Jesus to be beaten. The soldiers decide to fashion a crown for this so-called king, but it's not a crown of precious metal. It's a crown of twisted thorns. It's a crown of suffering, not apparently a crown of authority. And somehow the soldiers have access to a very costly piece of purple cloth, and they put it on him as a mock royal robe. Maybe Pilate provided it. They pretend to honor him as a king, the king he claims to be, but they hail him as king of those Jews, and they strike him as they ridicule him. And so then Pilate brings this beaten and ridiculed king to present him to the leading priests and temple officials. And what is Pilate's assessment? I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Pilate presents Jesus as king of the Jews, perhaps despite these Jewish leaders, maybe with no small amount of sarcasm. He probably feels like these crazy Jews deserve a king like this, one who is apparently weak and absurd. So he presents a beaten man wearing a mockery of a royal crown and robe. But Pilate's mockery is far truer than he can possibly imagine. So Pilate says, behold the man, or here's the man. Well, here he is indeed. And what would they behold? A man standing before them beaten and bleeding. A man who'd been ridiculed and mocked. A man standing with a painful crown on his head and a mock royal robe over his shoulders. But if they would have had eyes to see, they would have witnessed a man who stood there bearing all of this for love of a world he personally created. A world over which he was king. A world that included Pilate and the chief priests and the soldiers as his subjects. So Pilate and his soldiers representing Rome see a ridiculous joke. The Jewish leaders see a blasphemous pretender. But we, with eyes of faith, we can see, if we will look, our true king. And so in the end, Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified, just as the Jewish leaders had demanded he do. And so he is taken to Golgotha. We probably don't need to be reminded, but it's not bad to remember that the cross was not then as it is now a fashionable piece of jewelry. It was the primary means of Roman execution. It was a painful and a shameful way to die. Christ crucified is, or could be, Christ executed. I spent quite a bit of time reading and rereading the Isaiah 53 passage, that prophetic poetry especially in the light of how it keeps turning up in the gospel story throughout the New Testament. So, for example, 
at the very beginning of chapter 53. John, in his gospel, quotes the line that says, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And he quotes it as words underscoring the deep unwillingness of so many Jews to believe in what Jesus had said and done. Matthew draws on Isaiah 53, 4, where, it's, where Isaiah says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And he quotes those lines as he tells the story of Jesus healing those who were sick and demon-possessed. And on the cross, Jesus ultimately takes all of our griefs, our infirmities, our sorrows, our brokenness upon himself. The disciple Peter, in his first letter, quotes the lines that say, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And Peter seems to quote these lines as a kind of summary, as almost a shorthand for the gospel that he preaches. In the book of Acts, there's the story of Philip the deacon, who's led by the Spirit to find an Ethiopian eunuch who happens to be reading from Isaiah 53. Luke in the book of Acts says the, the line he was reading is the one about like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. And this becomes Philip's starting point as Luke puts it, in telling this Ethiopian all the good news about Jesus. And then Jesus himself quotes a line from this prophetic passage. In Luke's account, the line that says, he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus quotes that line as he was preparing those disciples on that last night for what would happen on this day. He said that there was something in this that would be fulfilled in him shortly. And so the Isaiah words spoken centuries earlier painted a picture of a Messiah who came to rule in a way that Israel simply hadn't anticipated and could hardly imagine. Instead of exercising political power over Rome, he would deal with the problem of humanity at the very source, at the level of the heart. He would take upon himself everything that separates humanity that has separated us from God. And he would open the way for us to live in deep and confident and free communion with God. And so this brings us to the three words John tells us about in his telling of the gospel in our reading. The first where he looks at his mother and says, woman, behold your son. And he looks at the disciple whom he loved, John, and says, behold your mother. At the cross keeping vigil are his mother, his aunt, another Mary, wife of Clopas, apparently a woman of influence, Mary Magdalene, and John. And what's remarkable to me is that in his suffering, Jesus sees his mother in her loss. And he sees the disciple whom he loved in his loss. 
A son will be lost, a friend will be lost, and Jesus is concerned that they have family. That's remarkable. Jesus doesn't just come to heal individuals or save individuals. He's come to build a family, brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. And even on the cross, this is his concern. He creates a family that runs deeper than blood. It runs at the level of spirit, at the level of the kingdom of God, at the level of the family of God. It is a family bonded by common allegiance to this kingdom. God's purpose, God's will. There is a second thing that Jesus says in in John's telling, and that is, I thirst. John suggests these two words, are a realization of something spoken of in the Jewish writings, Psalm 22 to be particular. They are an echo of the Psalms as prophetic language. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, it says in Psalm 22. I thirst is a simple statement of Jesus' very real humanity. He is enduring the cross as a very real human person. He has been beaten. He has been abused. He has been crucified, and he endures the heat of the day. He thirsts. He just really is thirsty. He is human. And so we must remember that Jesus knows our thirsts, not as a theory, not as an idea, but as a lived reality. He knows and empathizes with us in our very real thirsts. What is remarkable is that the one who is on this cross said of himself that I am the living water. He came to quench the thirst of all of us. And now he thirsts. And what is there for his thirst? There is this sour wine probably more vinegar than wine. The one who said to a woman at a well who came thirsty, the water I give will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The one who on the last day of one of the great temple festivals stood and cried to the crowd, is anyone thirsty? Let that one come to me. If they trust me, It will be as though rivers of living water flow from within them. And yet this one on the cross, on this Good Friday, he thirsts. The one who comes as living water is offered only sour wine. The one who once turned water into the finest wine that steward had ever tasted is given cheap, sour, common wine to drink in the end. So on this Good Friday, where is it that we find ourselves thirsty? In what ways do we find ourselves hungry? Jesus understands. By experience, he knows. And he invites us to come. And then finally, the last word that John has Jesus saying on the cross is, it is finished. 
Walter Brueggemann wrote a little book for Good Friday called Into Your Hands, in which he preaches seven sermons on the seven words of Jesus that are captured in the various gospel stories. When he talks about these three words, it is finished, he suggests that they recall other moments in the fin of God's finished work in the scriptural story. I mean, in the creation story, we read that by the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. In the Exodus story, where Moses is building the tabernacle in the wilderness, there comes a simple moment when it says, and so Moses finished the work. In the Joshua story, in which they have now entered into this land of promise and is being distributed tribe by tribe, there comes a moment when we hear these words. And so they finished dividing the land. And Brueggemann suggests that God finishes creation and defeats chaos. That God finishes the tabernacle and defeats absence. God finishes giving shares of the land of promise to his people and defeats homelessness. But now, Jesus declares the greatest it is finished of them all. From the cross, it is a victory of God's kingdom and God's way in this world. Jesus has loved, lived a loving life, and Jesus dies a loving death. The kingdom of God's care for this world and his people has won on his terms. So Jesus says it is finished to the reigning power of death and overcomes death by taking death into himself. He says it is finished to every human power in that moment, Ro moment, Roman or Jewish or any other that stands against the reign of God in God's own world. Jesus says it is finished to the power of guilt and shame by taking it all with him into death. He says it is finished to the cramped and constricted visions of the life of faith that had arisen in the law-focused way of the Jewish leaders at that time. And so, to what in our lives might Jesus say, it is finished? How might he speak these as words of grace and mercy to our own guilt or shame? How might he say, it is finished, as words of encouragement or refreshment to us in our weariness or discouragement? How might he say it is finished as words of authority and power over our fears, our worries? How might he speak these words, it is finished, to our temptation to say, maybe it's not quite finished. Maybe it's almost finished. Maybe I need to finish it. To all of these, Jesus says, it is. It is finished. And so as we move to a few moments of silent reflection this evening, how might the words or the actions of Jesus in his suffering and his death speak to a very real place in which you find yourself? In what way might Jesus be giving you grace as he says to you, it is finished. Let's be still.
and silent and prayerful for a moment.